Shalhevet High School presents the Radical Moderation Podcast. Here's your host, Rabbi Ari Siegel. Welcome back to the Radical Moderation Podcast. I'm your host, Ari Siegel. Just a reminder for our listeners to please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever platform you are listening on. Uh, A brief sentence, even short, something like the host was horrible or the host was incredible or the guest was, will, you know, bump up our rating. So please do that. Our Twitter handle is at Rad Moderation, R-A-D Moderation. And our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash Radical Moderation. I am pleased and honored to be joined today by a dear friend at this point, Yona Shemtov. Yona is the director. Is that your title? Executive director. Executive director of Encounter. We'll hear a little bit more about Encounter uh, later in the podcast. But Yona, to start us off, what are you reading now? Oy, that's a good question. Well, there's four children in my house and we're getting ready for Pesach. So honestly, not reading um, any books. Although I did just, someone gave me a copy of The Killing of the King, um, which was recommended actually uh, by a colleague. It's a it's by Dan Efron, I think, and it uh, tells the story sort of around the time leading up to Yitzhak Rabin's assassination. So that is on my to read over Pesach. And also I ordered Deborah Lipstadt's new book on anti-Semitism. Oh, I love it. Some uplifting reading in time. For <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, all right. We'll go, I'll go for an easier question. How about your best purchase under $20 in the last month? Yarn. Are you knitting? I am. I'm actually knitting as we're speaking right now. (laughs) What are you knitting? I am knitting a cowl scarf with two different colored yarns. Oh, that's so nice. Yes, it it complements the heavy reading. (laughs) Do you find that that relaxes you? I mean, is that why? I actually do. I feel like it's very, I feel like there's many practices that we've, like in this crazy high tech universe, we've dropped to the wayside. And so... It's kind of nice to be doing something with my hands, textile. Hmm. What and else cool. besides knitting? What else have we lost? What else have we lost? Yeah. I mean, crazy the, world. The capacity to communicate constructively might be one of those things that we need to work on. But yeah, no, knitting, baking. I kind of like to do all those things that people may think are old fashioned. It's interesting. This is a podcast, so people can't see you, but I feel like the sarcasm was just oozing out of the their eyes. It's so not sarcastic. I'll literally, I'll send you a picture of what I'm knitting. When no, I'm... no, I mean that we've lost uh, the ability to communicate. Oh, on the constructive stuff? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Partially tongue-in-cheek, obviously, given like the political context here in the United States and also around some of the subject matter that I'm sure we'll get to in our conversation. I mean, I just got back from, from Israel and we were there on one of our programs during the week of the election. And so it just seems like there's a high intensity of conversation. And part of what we're hoping to do is to build up people's capacity to lean into those conversations as opposed to leaning out. Hmm. Favorite candy bar. I am more of a savory person, but if you really push me, I would say a coffee crisp, which is a Canadian chocolate bar. Oh, tell me more about it. We don't have those here. Oh, it's delicious. Kind of flaky, light on the chocolate, enough crisp, and it tastes like coffee. Oh, that sounds so. So you're a coffee lover? 
I am a coffee lover. What, where do you get your coffee in Brooklyn? I know you live in Brooklyn. At home. I grind and make my own coffee every day. French press, French press, pour over? No, an espresso machine, although I travel with my French press. My people make fun of me, but it is true. I travel with a like travel kettle and a travel French press and ground coffee grounds. Yona, I feel like we are soulmates. I'm a coffee <laughs> and people Are you? Yeah. Oh my gosh. People find my coffee habit uh, almost uh, unhealthy, but you know, I, who cares? I feel like the vices, these are kind of the vices that we should be allowed to have these days. Agreed. Wait, did you have a bean of choice? Like a, a, a roast? I like a French, dark French roast. Mm. Okay. We'll have to, once we're done with the podcast, we'll, uh, we'll talk. I have a great Perfect. dark roast also. Perfect. All right. So tell the, our listeners about you. How did you end up running Encounter? I know that I think you started in Jewish education. You went to the Chad High School, the Chad School mm-hmm. in Toronto, and then taught there. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you jump straight to Running Encounter? Anything along the way? How did you uh, engage with this work? Um, so I'll try to do my best. I'll regular answer. Although I would say I'm still in Jewish education. I once bumped into my old boss, who was the head of school at Chad in Central Park recently after I'd started an encounter. And he said, oh, but you were such a talented Jewish educator, which was very kind and generous of him to say. And I said, well, I'm still in the biz. I'm still in the business. Um, I started, you know, I come to this work really, I think in many ways from a very personal background. I grew up in Toronto, was a graduate of the day school system there. I graduated from Chet as a student. Um, I was very active in Canadian and Judea all the way up through my 20s and served as a staff member and then on the board. Um, But my family background sort of predisposed me, I think, in many ways to be doing the work that I do. My mom is a Shoah survivor. She was a hidden child during the course of the war. Um, And my dad was born and raised and bar mitzvahed in Baghdad. And they met in Israel in the 50s, the new, newly formed state. And they ended up moving to Canada. And so I grew up very much in an animated household of Hebrew and Arabic and Polish and English. And so that was kind of like a colorful canvas for my own really Jewish upbringing and also my experience in day school learning and in progressive Zionist youth movement, the the dissonance began to surface around the fact that, you know, there was soft rhetoric or suspicion around Arabs, you know, throughout my education in different ways, some in, you know, very to varying degrees. And then we would go and have Shabbat dinners at my grandparents and Arabic, of course, was the language of choice. So that sort of piqued curiosity, obviously different communities, not that they're, you know, you can't map one onto the other, but it sort of did peak an interest. And I moved through the system and had big plans actually to be a lawyer slash social worker. And I fell in love with being a camp counselor. And so then I applied to the, um, there was a dual education, dual degree program at York University. Um, there was a Kashitsky chair of Jewish education who was extraordinary teacher, Alex Pompson. And he really influenced my thinking where suddenly I realized not only was I fascinated by Jewish history, but also about history education and the way in which we learn history and construct historical narratives. 
And uh, I went back to teach Jewish history at chat, which if you talk to anybody that I went to chat with, that would not have been a bet they would have made back in the day. Um, and then I ended up at Hebrew U to do some graduate work. I had sort of been flirting with Aliyah for a long time. I took a sabbatical from teaching at chat, went to Hebrew U, and at the same time applied to graduate schools in the States. And I ended up coming to NYU to do a doctorate in education and Jewish studies um, focused on the teaching of the conflict in Jewish high schools, which, believe it or not, 15 years ago was controversial. I think less so these days. Can you, so let's, I want to jump back for a second. Mm -hmm. So you're a student at chat. There's some dissonance there. It's not exactly the dissonance we hear about where people get to a college campus and hear, you know, and, and feel like they were taught one thing in high school and now they're on a college campus and they're hearing uh, something else. If not now, where, where, was you, where were you in chat in high school? Um, was there a, an Israel education piece going on then when you went back? Were you teaching the conflict or Israel mm -hmm. education or you were mm -hmm. teaching something else? Mm -hmm. I mean, as a student, there definitely was. And one of the things as I became kind of a history education geek about this, you know, there's the formal overt curriculum. And then, of course, there's the curriculum in a school that just exists in the culture that's cultivated. And so, you know, through the songs, through the language, through love of Israel sort of permeated many different things. Also, the Toronto Jewish community is is different uh, than many of the, you know, certainly different than the community I live in now. The community is plenty of Holocaust survivors, a lot closer to the immigrant experience and very, like Zionism is sort of um, central to almost all aspects of being, that was my experience growing up uh, being Jewish. So, you know, my college campus experience was informed by that. I actually remember walking on York University and there was a, like a, I don't know, I probably the equivalent of a Students for Justice in Palestine, although I was not so politically active then. There was a huge demonstration in the core quarter, and I remember getting into an argument with one of the activists saying, well, there is no country such as Palestine. Um, so I really was coming at it with sort of a sense of negating any other narrative. I don't blame that on my education. I think like I was, you know, I probably also was... Um, Oh, what's the word? Not meaning to be combative, but there was something like transgressive in me at that point and pushing back um, Do you in that regard. So, I mean, we read a lot about the If Not Now movement and, and students who, uh, sorry for those listeners who don't know what that is, that's a, I think post high schoolers who have gone to Jewish day schools who feel like, um, and the ha their hashtag is you never told us or you never told me. Yona, you, I, I don't know exactly uh, the information on that, but they're graduates of the Jewish day school system who feel like uh, the Jewish day schools did not do an adequate enough job presenting both perspectives on the narrative. They heard only one perspective and they feel like it, um, it left them blindsided and they're, and they're very upset with the, with the, uh, with the, the educational uh, models that, that are out there. Um, you know, I, I look at a group like that and I think, all right, I, I hear you, meaning we could be doing better, but but also relax a little bit. Um, Gil Troy, who uh, I saw a piece he wrote in response to the If Not Now people, you know, they say, you never told us that uh, there are these challenges that, uh, and these things that are not beautiful highlights in the Israel, uh, in Israel's history. Um, and his response was, well, 
yeah, like we also, mom and dad didn't tell you about their economic struggles and they didn't tell you about the family uh, issues uh, when you were a kid either. And there's a time and a place for young people to hear about the other side of the narrative. What are your thoughts on that? Do you agree? Do you think there's a an age where we should be exposing young people to oh them. Oh my goodness, we don't have enough time to talk about this. I have so many thoughts about it. So first of all, I would just say from my own experience, my teachers probably did teach me about it. And this is instructive. I stayed in touch with my teachers, both because I went back to teach at that school, which is an unusual experience. And then I came to NYU and I helped co-found a network of um, national like Jewish history educators and practitioners that they could be linked up with researchers. And through that, I got to work with my former teachers and then former bosses. And they did teach me. I wasn't always paying attention. Like as a teenager, I was, you know, consumed with other priorities. And so one of the things that, you know, has come up to me is when we move through high school, we may not remember everything that was actually, um, presented to us, that doesn't mean it wasn't always taught. In terms of the, if not now, critique on, I would say, like the wider infrastructure of Jewish education, it's not just day schools, they're also focused on camps, etc. You know, I would, I'll remove it from them for a moment and just say that um, there is a larger question about if we want a generation, certainly outside of the modern Orthodox community, if you want non, because I think there's differences in demographics, but if you want um, students to remain engaged and to feel enfranchised and part of something, you know, what Professor Troy is talking about, yes, that's true, but it can also unintentionally be infantilizing and insult their intellectual capacity, meaning we also know that some of the best education, especially at uh, high school level engages students in things that are not black and white and we invite them into that and it seems like we've been so successful as a community in so many areas um, of our curricula at doing just that you know um, the why why are we making the exception around Israel I'm not saying that we are I think that there's this is one of the challenges about Jewish education it's not a centralized system there's no centralized curriculum there's no centralized training or standards and benchmarks around what is the place of Israel in a 21st century Jewish education outside of Israel? I mean, I think those are very important questions and there's a lot of smart people working on them. But I think the critique that some of the less flattering components, you know, that are, that are not just about Israel's incredible achievements need to be woven into the education about Israel, I think is a fair critique. Um, what, do you, what do you attribute that choice to? Let's, let's you know, give steel man, you know, as opposed to the straw man. You're, you're saying maybe it's not an intentional choice. There's not even, a, there's no centralized idea. So this could be happening in silos, but every school and every community or most are making mm -hmm. the choice not to, you know, they're, they're teaching nuance in every other area. But in this particular area, they're not showing them the unflattering pieces. They're I actually don't know if that's true, though. Like, I have also talked to colleagues who've come, for example, on our programs, and they report, actually, they do teach about these things. They have woven in narratives. I know examples of people in schools that are both Orthodox high schools and, you know, the high schools affiliated with the conservative movement, where, in fact, the teachers or the heads of schools would say, well, yes, they are. They're not doing it perfectly, but what are we doing perfectly? But they are bringing it in. So I'm not, I'm not saying as a blanket statement that 
that it's not happening. I think that's part of what complicates the discussion is that activists will, by nature of the activism, you know, um, what's the word? It's not like to antagonize. It's like a disrupting tactic. And so to do that, you have to reduce and make grand statements. And of course, like the reality is much more complex. Some schools are doing it. Some teachers are doing it. I think there is definitely like an issue around there isn't a cohesive philosophy. I think schools in particular, but camps too, are taxed with how do they pack in the most bang for people's buck in a, in a rigorous Jewish education and what's the place of Israel period in that. And I think there's fear. Like what happens if we show some of these things? Some, I think also there's ideology, like not people may feel like these are not, um, these are not things they may not have problems with some of the things that the, if not now activists are drawing attention to. So I think it varies across the board. And I think that's part of what gets us, into hot waters is just so different across the board. Uh -huh. And so addressing it with each of the different stakeholder groups that is choosing for various reasons not to address this or, or intentionally or unintentionally not to expose students to this, it, it, you're not monolithic and therefore the solution is obviously pretty complicated. It's more challenging. I think part of our problem is though, then we throw our hands up because if it's not a monolithic solution, then what are we supposed to do? And I think that's where we, run into trouble because there's a lot at stake. Like, I think Professor Troy is right. Like, we don't need a curriculum that just doubles down on, you know, the underbelly. On the flip side, like, I don't know, there's, there's different schools of thought around this in terms of education. Do you introduce ideas like this where students are at a developmentally appropriate age to deal with conflicting ideas, conflicting narratives, and that they can hold that? So, you know, when I was looking at some of this in my dissertation research, some of the, the language was around, some of the research, I'm sorry, was focused around 10th or 11th grade. You know, there are schools of thought that say, well, actually, you should never teach students anything that they have to unlearn. And there's some interesting wisdom in that. So then the question is, how do you, uh, how do you address a fraught issue um, with students in in 45 minute increments in a day that's already challenged with a lot of other things. And I think it's a hard question, but we have a lot of work to do to be doing better at that. We can and should be doing better. And is there is there the possibility that the students will become less passionate in supporting Israel if they know about the underbelly? I mean, there's always the possibility, but... I guess it's been my anecdotal experience, and again, it depends on the demographic, that students, the idea, I had a student actually, it's funny, I had a student who was like one of, you know, a cherished student, I had a very good relationship in the early years of Facebook, found me on Facebook, and you asked me, did I teach the conflict? I actually very um, skillfully avoided teaching the conflict while I taught at chat. I taught ninth through 12th grade Jewish history, but I did not teach the course on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, except I was put on a curriculum team uh, during the second intifada. And that's when I had a lot of questions come up about the intersection of politics with curricula. This student reached out to me, I don't know, 12 years later to say, how come you never showed us, you know, the green line and how come there was never a map? In the and I was never even his teacher on Israel, meaning he came back to me. I taught him about like medieval Jewish history. <laughs> And I think, I think there is a risk for us if we are purposefully um, leaving things out. In the same way, like in Tanakh or halachic issues that where there may be things that are challenging. By the way, like, what's more interesting than that? 
those are the thorny, interesting questions. And our tradition, you know, has a canon of such wisdom to unpack that. And I think around the question, the questions that are surfacing for so many people about Israel, these are really important existential questions that frankly, why not draw people in with them? There's, you know, the students are capable of being involved in robust intellectual discussions. We might be doing better, frankly, if we invited them into those conversations. Hi, I have to say, I agree with your former student. You're not doing enough, Fiona, around this issue. So, um, (laughs) I'm going to jump into the radical moderation part of this. Okay. Uh, I would, I'll assume that uh, our listeners have, have Googled a little bit about Encounter, but do you want to share with us Al Regalachat, the 30-second version of what Encounter does and is trying to do? To the extent that I can, sure, I'll try. It's, um, we're an educational and leadership development organization very much focused for the moment on American Jewish leaders, committed American Jewish leaders who care deeply about Israel, the American Jewish community, and the relationship between the two. Um, and we offer sort of programming meant to buttress people's leadership. And the signature program that we offer is an immersive um, travel experience as part of a cohort of uh, fellow leaders to the region to spend four days um, in East Jerusalem and in Palestinian communities in the West Bank and to spend time also uh, with a cross-sector of uh, fellow American Jewish leaders. And I will just say we've done this work in the past with Israelis, and we're launching this July, actually, the first pilot of our work with Israelis. With Israeli leaders. I, there was, there's like a day-long, did Encounter do a day-long thing for students who were studying there? We, we basically, the organization was founded by rabbinical students for rabbinical students in the early years, and it evolved over time to reach people who were, you know, in positions of, established influence. Um, but we stopped a couple of years ago running, we used to run two day programs. It was like a day and a half. There was an overnight and it was mostly in the Bethlehem and Gush Etzion area. And we had all different kinds. We had a gap year program. We had, um, you know, rabbinical and like future leaders program. And then we did have, we did run for about six years programs for Israelis, but we did it quietly. Um, it was not advertised on our website and, we did it quietly because there's opponents on either end who are not radical moderates <laughs> that might take issue with it. And so we built up enough of an alumni base of that group, but then we hired um, a researcher at Hebrew University to do a landscape um, analysis because people kept saying to us, Israelis, you know, nothing like this exists here. Why aren't you making this available to us? So we're, we're looking into that. Um, we're going to pilot that this July. When you say there are... Um people on both sides who aren't radical, radical moderates. Yes. Uh, my, my first uh, feeling is, well, yeah, no, I understand there are people on the right wing of, let's say, Israeli politics who think, why are you doing this? Can you share for the listeners what you mean by the left wing people who, who, who are against you going to meet Palestinians? Yeah. Well, I would say there's, when I say that it's almost dual, I'm, it's almost double speak in the sense that both sides Whenever I say that, I often mean the left and the right. And in this particular case, I meant Jews and Palestinians about the Israeli project, meaning there is definitely a strong movement of anti-normalization amongst Palestinians. Um, Explain explain that. Sure, sure. I mean, to the extent that's the best of my ability. You know, uh, anti-normalization is a sort of, I don't know if you call it a movement. There's certainly a spectrum of what that looks like, but there is a sense of 
resistance to participating in quote unquote like dialogue efforts, etc. This is now I'm speaking the way I understand it from Palestinian colleagues, because there is a sense that those programs there's a power differential. And those who have power, so in that case, let's say like Israelis are in the um, power upper hand, return to their daily normal lives while the Palestinians return to what they feel is an abnormal situation. And so getting together with Israelis where it doesn't um, advance trying to rectify that power indifference is called normalization. And so there's a strong movement of anti-normalization, not to do things, um, you know, to resist normalizing this. So in that particular case, I was talking about, there's probably some folks on the hard right um, within Israel who might take issue with a program like this, you know, and there are probably folks within Palestinian society who feel like, well, you shouldn't be engaging with Israelis. So there's that. In terms of our work now with American Jews, I mean, we get it. We get it from both sides, um, which, you know, as the cliche goes, that seems to mean like, okay, then we're doing, we're doing our job. The opposition would be that, you know, this is so stereotypical and reductionist because the truth of the matter is we have people on the right who have been supportive of what we're doing and people on the left who've been not supportive and vice versa. So there's not, you know, a rule but the idea of people being concerned, are we going to unravel the fabric of connection to the state of Israel through the programs that we're doing? And people on the left feeling, well, this is not an activist intervention. This is not radical. This is not a standing in opposition to and with a clear set of activist agenda items. And so there are, and that includes Jewish people on the left too, who might feel like, oh, well, encounter is a normalizing enterprise. Um, and that they're entitled to their opinion. I mean, I'm in, I'm in robust conversations with colleagues on the left and the right. And I personally am instructed by the wide, um, spectrum of Palestinian speakers who continue to want to speak to our groups and frankly, who say no to a lot of other groups, but continue to want to work with us. And why do they, why do you think they do that? What is it about encounter? I think... First of all, I think to date it is because we have, you know, for many of them, it's like, because we're, we're not a dialogue organization. Uh, we are much more, we really are very much an educational organization. So the idea that we are providing them access to an audience that doesn't often get to hear their perspective is a value add for them. That's number one. Number two, we're not asking them to 50-50 split the time and then listen, you know, to the Jewish leaders try to persuade them to see it their way. We're, we're genuinely, you have a platform, you have an opportunity to engage with this community, you're invited to make your case, they're going to ask you difficult questions, and many of our speakers have said, that is what's interesting. They're not interested in speaking to Jews, and I, this is a quote, you know, to the Jews who are more Palestinian than the Palestinians themselves. Many of our speakers are most interested when they get to be in conversations with Jews that they, you know, who are not lining up behind them, but it's respectful and robust and there's a genuine exchange um, of ideas. There's, I think people, there's so little opportunity for that these days um, that I think they are, are energized by it. And I think also they have seen people 
follow up with them. I mean, we have one speaker who's like in a weekly Skype session with um with a Jewish lay leader and we've had rabbis and directors of different institutions come back into the territories to meet with the speakers to learn more etc and so that I think is gratifying to them. So uh, given uh, the um, lack of, let's say, radical moderation in the world in general, or it seems everyone's dug into their preconceived notions and their preconceived positions. Do you find that it's challenging to get people interested in encounter? It's been easy, easier than you thought it would be, harder than you thought it would be. How do you do it? How do you keep that? How do you get people and get excited about going on this trip when there is such, uh, you know, strong feeling in either direction? Mm-hmm. You know, we launched the first um, pilot for these intensives in July of 2016, and then there was the elections in November of 2016, and I thought for sure we're going to be done, like no one will be interested in this because the domestic arena, the issues surfacing in the domestic arena were going to be so urgent for people, and we found that the inverse was true. I still don't 100% know what has contributed to that, but I'll just say there is a natural interest. So that's what's changed, I think, over the last few years. Like people are, we don't have to make the case that this is an important, vital issue. People know that. We don't need to make the case that um, leaders in our community need to be engaged constructively with people to the left and right of them um, on the issues. I think some of the places where you know, depending on who we're talking to that we need to make the case is that being in conversation with the people with whom, you know, Jewish Israelis are destined one way or another to share the land. Some people are naturally already kind of interested in that. Others have been very suspicious. But then what's interesting I've noticed over the years is that as they find out other people who they respect and trust have had the experience and have spoken about it in a way, um, you know, that they've said this was actually very enriching for my leadership. We've had people circle back to us. So that's been, that's been very interesting. I think like, I think there's an inherent need and I think we're tapping into something that frankly, nobody else is offering in the same way that we are. Meaning there are other opportunities. If someone's interested to going into meeting with Palestinians, there's plenty of other pathways. Um, but there aren't pathways to do that with a curated cohort of Jewish leaders that's not attached to a specific activist outcome. Um, and I, you know, that has hechshered food and that has davening three times a day, etc. Do you consider yourself apolitical, political? Oh, I definitely don't don't think we're apolitical. And I feel um, very strongly that when the language of apolitical is surfaced as it relates to anything to do with Israel, it should um, inspire suspicion. I mean, and not always in a bad way, but there is no such thing as apolitical when it comes to education about or educational travel in Israel. I mean, if you've planned, you, you know this as a head of school or if anyone who's planned a trip, like the choices about where you make an itinerary are very political. And the, and the very value proposition for us to say, Jewish leaders need to prioritize this. They need to make time to integrate this into their view is certainly a political proposition where I would say that it, it's not policy 
wed, right? We are not wed to any particular policy. I am not a policy wonk or expert. I'm not here to say this particular policy configuration is the quote-unquote solution. Again, there are many organizations out there, if someone wanted to engage on this issue, um, that are advancing a particular policy platform. Um, I think what people are drawn to, they're also frustrated, understandably, by this, but I think many people are also drawn to the fact that actually we're not telling you when you come back, this is quote-unquote the solution. Because we're not bringing people to say, you must solve the conflict. I think there's a lot of jingoisms um, floating around. We're really saying, come on, if you're going to be responsible, thoughtful, informed, educated leaders, which our community and your constituents really need, you have to ask yourself, what texts are missing from your canon on this issue? And can we help you with that? How can you go back and teach better on this, talk better, etc.? Yona, you have, I'm playing a game now, it's called... <laughs> You only have one spot left on Encounter. Yes. Who are, you <laughs> looking, who are you looking for for that spot? Do you, is that like your right wing APAC attendee? Do you want someone who's modern Orthodox, right? Do you want someone Haredi? My listeners are listening. Mm -hmm. Who do you want for that last spot for this mm -hmm. trip? Oh, that's such a hard question. It's a good question. This is the question we keep saying that there's like only 120 seats a year. So for the American Jewish leaders, mm -hmm. I'll just say um, we are, in terms of our recruitment matrix, we, we weigh more heavily. Um, our interest is, is in reaching more of the modern Orthodox community. This is a community that has a natural, deep, and strong connection um, with Israel, but also with the areas of land um, that are that we're visiting into the community. So I'm very interested in bringing folks from within the modern Orthodox community who this, this is not going to radicalize or shake them in any way, but it may inform some of the ways that they think or teach or write about this. Um, you know, for the Israeli pilot that we're running, I think that's very much like an active question that we have right now is, who are, the, who are the influencers and the levers within Israeli Jewish society? Um, and that's, we're really just beginning that process to learn right now. If you had to tell the American Jewish community, let's say in particular the modern Orthodox community, something they need to know about this conflict, maybe they, they're not going to come on your trip, they can't go on the trip, they're not, mm -hmm. whatever it is. What, what's something you want the American Jewish modern Orthodox community to know about this conflict? It's going to sound, you know, I'm almost embarrassed to say it because it may sound trite and so simplistic, um, but that there is a way in which we strip unknowingly the, the dignity of the people with whom we share the land when we don't notice them. And, and I don't just mean notice them. You know, I've heard from a lot of people, oh, my daughter who lives in Efrat, her gardener is Palestinian, or that person works as a you know, whatever in the kitchen, etc. I would say like there is real three dimensional communities uh, that are living next door to us in, in the territories who are interested in living um, peacefully. And I think we'll never be able to get closer to that step if we're not in real proximity to them. And by proximity, I don't mean that we're living a stone's throw away from them. I mean, actually able to look them panim el panim, um, and hear a little bit about what's at stake for them. 
Um, that doesn't mean we have to let go of what's at stake for us, but can we make a space to figure out, well, how might we integrate that into the way that we're proceeding on this issue? I thank you for that. I, I don't think I have a very large Muslim listenership, but <laughs> just if, in case, yes. Not yet. Um, is there something you'd want them to know? Uh, the modern Orthodox Muslims, or maybe even, I don't know, them, the radical Muslims, uh, just run-of-the-mill people who aren't even necessarily very religious, but are Muslim. You know, I don't know specifically about Muslims. I think, you know, something that I I wish, there's a lot of conversation these days, you know, around Ilhan Omar and around an activist um, population that's kind of rising up in the American setting. And I just... To me, I think it's such a hopeful proposition that there are deeply connected and committed Jewish leaders, really people who've dedicated their life, you know, either their life's work or their philanthropy um, to the good of the Jewish world who are in earnest seeking with genuine curiosity to learn more um, about the lives of Palestinians in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. And, and I think that that's hidden for people. And I think it's very important for them to know that that's happening because I think um, the erasure of that also, unfortunately, is also contributing, I think, uh, to misperceptions about Jews on the flip side. That's not why we do what we do, um, but it's something I've noticed and I, I felt often a yearning. I wish more people knew that this was happening and about the incredible leaders who come with us. And, and really it's not just that they're taking a week off of work or leaving their partners and their children behind. They're investing their heart and soul to really see and hear and move the needle in whatever ways they can. And that is incredibly inspiring to me. Um, do you have any lines you're not radically moderate about? Are there like things that are beyond the pale of ideas you would consider on, on either side of the discussion? In terms of like politics or in terms of who we would accept on a program? You tell me. I mean, someone who, are, are you bringing um, a, uh, someone who would have uh, voted for Otsmat Yehudit? Mm -hmm. uh, um, mm -hmm. or, or is that like the golden goose? You want to grab someone like that and show them uh, what's going on. Uh, mm -hmm. Would you have a speaker come who thinks that Israel needs to go back to its pre-1948 borders. Mm -hmm. uh, oh my God, we had a speaker last week who said something insane and I had to, for me it was insane and I had to practice my resilient listening. I totally disagreed with him and frankly was offended by what he said, but it was important for me to hear. I would say, you know, to me, I do come back on this issue to the work of Jonathan Haidt. Like I think, I think there is often an assumption that it is the right wing that is least open and least willing to hear. That's not always the case. I have seen um, folks on the left. I think my, my red line is, you know, it's going to sound self-righteous to say I don't mean it in a self-righteous way because I'm sure I have been, I've made this, you know, I've slipped into this maybe my mistake. But in the moments of passion, there's some people who dominate the public square on this issue who honestly, they conduct themselves with so much arrogance and so much certainty, and they, they lack actually a real humility about things they, they may not know. And for me, it's less actually about the politics, and it's more about beginning from a starting point of actually like, I may not have the entire truth, um, 
And, and that's something that's missing right now for me. I don't think people need to abandon their principles, but you know, I've heard of stories recently of like people, you know, progressive Jewish activists on the left um, turning on colleagues, you know, in a particular way and, and vice versa on the right. And it's just, it's such, it's a sin of arrogance, really. Have you, have you ever felt hopeless? I mean, you're, you're a very hopeful person and I know you're, but you're running these trips and you're seeing this and it's, I assume that the needle broadly is not moving massively, mm-hmm. but maybe on these trips. I mean, do you, do you lose hope at any times? If you do, how do you regain it? Where do you go for your faith and belief and aspirational, uh, you mm-hmm. know, ideas? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we put as the last of our organizational values, the first is Ahava Israel, and the last is Hatmada, steadfastness. Because so much on this issue, I think like people, there is a, for many, uh, not all, but for many, there's a sort of resignation to giving up. And our sense is actually like Israel is a fundamental, you know, miracle and sometimes a bit of a mess um, in terms of what it means to be alive as a 21st century Jew. And so giving up isn't really an option, even though we have moments, maybe we feel demoralized about the prospects for quote unquote peace. You know, I would say on the front in terms of the on the ground stuff where I draw resilience is from people who are living under honestly challenging circumstances and they are finding ways every day to activate their own agency instead of sitting back and saying like, look what's happened to me. And in terms of in the community, I think the community is moving. Like, I think there is an openness. There's more space for different narratives in our community. Um, My concerns are, are we going to be wise enough to show up in terms of communal leadership and provide access to a more multifaceted, um, more multifaceted aspects of Jewish and Israel identity so that people can become serious consumers and creators of the Jewish future. I a little bit worry that we're getting stuck into our own echo chambers. And that is, is largely my biggest concern that we're busy shouting and that's uninteresting to the next generation. All right. Last question on the encounter front. Yeah. You have a magic button you can press. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not letting you like squirm out of the question. Just that. Okay, great. How, how do you resolve this crisis? What's your dream perfect solution? <laughs> between Israelis and Palestinians? Be, and then between you and me, Yona. <laughs> <laughs> well, that might be much harder. Much more hard. <laughs> uh, between Israelis, Palestinians... You know, I feel like libraries have been written on this and there's so much Parsha Newt on the different solutions. I mean, right now you can fill a library with all the parsing of the elections. There have been many different um, quote unquote solutions that have been brought to the table. I think that there's not been traction is for many, many reasons. Um, and there's lots of fault to go around. But I do think that any compromise, any agreement that may move people out of the kind of entrenched, what feels like a status quo, but of course it's not, it's not a static reality, it's very dynamic, will have to uphold the dignity of all people who live on the land and will have to take into account really the existential and physical security of all people on the ground. And we're going to have to get more creative 
um, or more willful in our pursuit of that. I think we're seeing in some cases a pursuit of it's going to be us or them. And I think, you know, as long as that's the frame, a, a new reality will continue to elude us. So you're saying you, everyone's going to be on this land together. Are you aiming for one state, Yona, with two different governments and people choose mm -hmm. their citizenship? Do you want two states? Do you want a border between the two states, open borders between the states? Mm -hmm. You know, on this issue, it's interesting. It's in many ways feels like a very personal question because I never talk about my... Um, my own political, even like it just never features in many ways in terms of stuff. I would say I am, um, you know, some people are like polyamorous. I'm politically amorous, meaning there are, it changes, it fluctuates for me. And I, I think at the moment, like my, you know, again, my, my mom is a Shoah survivor. My father came to Israel in May, 1951 from Baghdad, like the the miracle of the Jewish state is not something that I take lightly uh, being alive for that, um, you know, in the span of 3000 years of Jewish history. And, and my, really my hope is that there is a way to preserve that in some shape or form that does not um, constitute the erasure or cost the self-determination of 4 million other people. Hi, that was a good answer. I'm not, I want to, like, <laughs> you managed to get out of the question. I don't know. It's honestly what I think. I've gotten into trouble. Political. With you said no. polyamorous on my show. I have Sorry. lots of children have... listening here, Yona. Sorry. Polyreligious. <laughs> Polypolitical. Sorry. That too. Um, all right. Last question. Given that you have zero vested interest because you're a Canadian citizen. Who's yes. Your, who's your pick for 2020? I'm kidding. You don't have to answer unless you want to. No, I, you know, first of all, I can't vote here. I'm still, I, I don't yet have citizenship. There's a great New Yorker cartoon that says I just play the Canadian card. So that would be my answer. <laughs> all right. Last real question. <laughs> Go what for it. What is the most valuable thing you've learned from someone you disagree with? Oh, that's easy. I have become friendly with someone. Many years ago, I met him on our first program, my first um, encounter trip to Hebron. And he's the, pat some people will be very angry at me for saying this, but he's the past president of uh, American Friends of Likud. And we meet once a year for coffee, um, once or twice a year, and we exchange emails. And it's just, it's good practice. He's like a, a lovely human. We argue in very animated ways. And I learn a lot about what I think. And I learn to tweak in some places where maybe I'm missing something. Um, it's been a very interesting, that's been interesting. And I would say I have that with some of our speakers too. Um, people who have become dear friends, even if, uh, you know, not on every Nekuda we're in 100% agreement. They have forced me to hopefully be smarter and wiser um, in the ways I'm thinking about this issue. Yeah, it's, it's actually interesting. You and I tried, when I started this podcast, I think we're like on number 20, 20 or something like that. Uh, my goal was to get two people on a podcast who <laughs> met with each other. And I have, it's been very, very hard to get that. Um, oh. 
people to agree to be on with each other. So uh, maybe you'll bring your Likud friend on in a future. Yeah. Well, I think that's, by the way, very telling. It requires oh. a degree of vulnerability and trust. And we're seeing that that's not, those are not the kinds of relationships that enough people, we're not cultivating those, but people are afraid to not be right. And that's, I think, part of the danger. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's wild because in Jewish thought, the idea of having a chavruta, chavrusa, someone mm-hmm. you learn with, who just says yes to you is not something we're comfortable with. I mean, mm-hmm. we want who push us, who challenge us, who we disagree with. We're not looking for people mm-hmm. uh, to just uh, to, to just say yes to us and to be yes people in echo chamber. So, Yona, thank you so much for joining us. Yona Shemtov is the executive director of Encounter. For those of you who are interested in learning more about their organization, you should absolutely go online, Google them, check it out, uh, doing some incredible work, very different than any other organization out there uh, who is working on this uh, issue. Thank you to my listeners for listening to Radical Moderation. Remember, please rate us five stars if you loved Yona. You're welcome to write that. <laughs> that will add a, that will bump us up on the rating, whether it's on iTunes or whatever other podcast app you're using. Follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at radmoderation or facebook.com forward slash radical moderation. And of course, you can email me with questions. I always offer this. Uh, I would love to get more questions from listeners. A.S-E-G-A-L at shallhabit.org. Have a wonderful day. Thank you, Yona. Thank you.